Hey everyone, welcome back to Why Care Podcast. I'm Rashma Sajani and I am here with Tim Allen. And Tim, I say this every week. I am so good. Uh, I'm good now that I'm seeing you. Uh, I love doing this podcast with you. I know. Who loves who more? I don't know. It's like a big contest here. Um, I love it. Well, we have another amazing guest with us, and before we get to her, how's it going? How's you know, your week been? It's it's good. The the boys, you know, two seven year olds. For those who are first time listeners, the two seven year old kids uh, have migrated from pee wee soccer to big boy soccer, uh, and so what I mean by that is they are kind of now in the phase of where they're learning not to use their hands in the game of soccer, and so I'm like, all right. Um, it was just, it was great. It's like mass chaos on a Saturday. I wouldn't have had it any other way. We were running around. Um, but I also learned I'm that parent. Does that make sense? Like I'm the parent who's like, go for the ball, get the ball. Like, like, like they're seven. They're not in, you know, the major league soccer tournament, but I have become that parent. Oh my gosh. Uh, Hit it harder. Yeah, Gosh. exactly. I'm like, the, it's over there. It's over there. And like, I'm like, oh my lord. Like, seriously, this is not going to make or break the children. Like, we, we, I got to get some rational thought put into this. So it was good. How about yourself? How are things going with you? It's been a little while. Good. Um, the kid, my my eight year old, actually started school last week. So New York City oh, public wow. schools open on Thursday. So I was like, here, you please have him because I had had enough over the summer. <laughs> Everyone's like, how was your summer? I'm like, shitty. Uh, all I basically did was like drive my kids around. So. I was excited that school started. Um, my second-year-old, Sai is still not sleeping. But, like, check this. Oh. So, basically, around 1 o'clock in the morning, like, my son turns literally into, like, Chucky. Do you remember that movie, Chucky, with that, yes. that doll? Like, yeah. Yes. So, I'm, like – and by, you know, by day, he's, like, the sweetest thing ever. But, anyway, he's a horrible eater, a horrible sleeper, a horrible napper. And so, he gets up at, like, 12, 2, 5, and 7. And so, I've been sleeping this way, basically – for like almost a year and I am just at my end, right? Yeah. So we found I finally caved and I got um a sleep doctor. And so we're starting today, but check this, Tim. So basically when he wakes up at one, you call her. And so you put your AirPods on, you call her, and she what? basically coaches you through what to say. She says it takes four days. Money back guarantee. Never actually had to give anybody their money back before. Um, so I don't know. Like my life might be like radically changing in a week. So we'll see. I am fascinated by this. Like I'm fascinated that she's on call at 1 a.m. So clearly she's disrupt- disrupting her own sleep pattern. Like, sorry, I got to unpack this for a second. We got to take a minute on this for, for the podcast. When when he's Chucky, is he like standing at the end of the bed and then you wake up in like a cold sweat and he's just staring at you? Or is it like he's like active and trying to wake you up when he has night terrors? Or do you he's, hear him so, like like what's the deal? So what she described to me too is like so basically he can't get into REM sleep. So every ah. time he starts REM, he gets terrified and he wakes up screaming. Got and it. so he's like unconsolable. And then you kind of eventually give him a bottle. And he kind of calms down. But basically, and this is, I I have run into so many parents who are experiencing this right now that, like, I don't know if it's a COVID thing or, like, what it is, but he just hasn't learned how to soothe himself. Uh, And so this is why you're seeing so many more kids back in the bed with their their parents, right, or not being able to sleep. And so essentially, I don't know, I think she may have some magic words or something, right, that she's going to tell me that is going to help him soothe himself. 
that is incredible. And then you look, I, I can't function at 8 a.m., let alone 1 a.m. So, like, are you going to, like, have the phone pre-dialed for, you know? I guess so. Well, I'm I mean, already, like, I mean, I'm jarring up, so. Oh, uh, so you're awake. You're awake, awake. Like, you're, like, I'm, a, I'm kind of awake, and I think I've learned how to, like, go back to sleep quickly. But here's the thing. I mean, it's going to be, for the next four days, a process of yeah. trying because he's going to scream and he's going to want that bottle. He's going to want to yeah. be in my bed and I'm going to be bringing him back and we're going to be, my husband and I are going to be doing this. So it's going to be interesting because, you know, the old method used to be that you walk them back yep. and then you stay in the room and then you slide out over That's what we the did. course That's what of did. like it was three horrible. weeks. Yeah. Right. And it's horrible. It's horrible. This is like some four-day thing that's like got to be uh, magical uh, maybe. I'm so jealous. I wish I'd, I'd known of this. Stuff. Like, you got to tell me the results because I'm so jealous. Well, don't be jealous yet until it actually works. I, you're like, wait for the results. Let's see what happens. Hey, you got a money back guarantee. There's nothing you're going to really like lose out on, right? I used to take Ryder, one of the twins, back to his bed. And if you can imagine me, I know people can't see me visually, but I'm a six foot six man. Then I'm crawled up into a, you know, toddler's bed. And then I would wake up and I'm like, why does why why does my neck hurt? I wonder, right? Because I'm sleeping in this like condensed, compressed bunk bed situation. And then like it never actually fixed anything. So it was like crazy. No. So but by no. the way, good for you. I really want this work. Are do you and your husband trade off on this? Like, is it you something where are you like consistently the one who's so this who's is waking the problem? Well, yeah. he he does nights and I do mornings. So he's kind of a zombie after two o'clock. But yeah. she's actually insist on both parents doing it. So you this we conference call her, so I don't, I don't know how it's going. It's going to be, it's going to be really, really, really interesting. Um, I love this. But you're going to be conference calling at one a.m. And 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 so, but today we have like a meeting where she basically is like, "Here's the ten thing. Like you got to go get like blackout lights, and I don't know. And like we live in New York City. It's not like there's like you know twenty rooms that we can all like work on. So, totally right. uh, but listen, but it's but it's but the lack of sleep, Tim, is killing me. Yeah. Um. And it's just you. You don't. You realize how important sleep is, like fundamentally to everything. And I've kind of been funk. Both of us, both me and my husband, kind of been functioning on this weird sleep pattern of sleeping every three hours and waking up. But it's really starting to kind of get to my mental health. Like I'm just. I, I don't. And I, and there's no point of doing anything. Like I go to bed at eight thirty to have a yeah. shot of having seven hours of sleep. So there's no like I'm getting not a break. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's incongruent sleep too, it's not always, you know, it's like you're getting woken up in the middle of it and then you got to go back to, it's like, that's not healthy for you. That's not no. healthy for anyone. Right. It's, it's a little bit of the thing I have an issue with on the, like the hustle culture situation. Like you could power through it. Like anyone could do it. And I'm like, that is such a joke for parents. Like, you know, we need, like we have humans that we are trying to make functioning, operating good adults and like, you know, it, we are the most sleep deprived segment at this point in terms of trying to get things to work. And it's like, oh, you could just, you could power through it as a parent. I'm yeah. like, no, like, that's crazy talk. Yeah. I don't want to do that. I want to like find balance. And there's really no empathy for it. Cause I mean, listen, no. I, I feel gracious that I'm, you know, my own CEO of my own, own nonprofit, my team understands, but I can't imagine going to a workplace where you're barely functioning, you're barely sleeping, and then you're supposed to like, you know, perform and outperform. Yeah. And um, it's a huge challenge. And I, and I do think, I want to hear what Claire has to say about this later, but like, I do think there's just, 
real kind of things that have happened from a parenting perspective, i.e. the not sleeping or the kids back in the bed, you know, that I think I'm hearing consistently from like parents across the spectrum um, and that COVID has really just upended a lot of like patterns in the ways that families have been operated that that like have a huge toll like yeah. on work and on life. So, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, no, you're absolutely no, right. Even in the it. mechanisms, yeah, even in the ways that people used to divide work and home, right? I was never one of those people who was like, oh, there's, there's, there's a division, there's a split, but there really was the physical manifestation of going to an office and doing something and then being in your home. I find now that my home is my office. It's really hard to disconnect and actually get that peace. Does that make sense? Like, it's just like, I know I leave the, the, the you know, I'm fortunate enough to have like a, room that could make an office. But like, even that I'm like, Ooh, I walk by it when I go to my bedroom and I'm like, there's work. Like, you know, yeah. like there's not enough space. Right. In that but world, also so. like, you know, when I used to go into an office, even the walk to work, I'd listen to a podcast mm-hmm. or I'd catch up with a friend or, you know, you had some amount of like separation. Now there's like, there's none of that. And yeah. I think in particular for women, I know Claire writes about this. It's like, I also do more stuff around the house. Oh Yeah. You know, yeah. because I'm now – and now also I'm working from home, so my husband's gone back in the office. Uh, and so it's not even like – so that's like it, – it's interesting to see now, again, how more things are kind of piling on my plate. I made him start taking the dog to, to his office because I was like, one thing's got to go. You know what I mean? Like you got to <laughs> like, take one of us. you must do this. You must exactly. – right, right. I am not going to – and my dog, Stan, is like 13 years old. She's going to go back from every hour. And I was right. like, this is not working, right? Like I'm – like none of this is working right now. So like that that's you know, some division of labor now. It's so right on. I mean, the the marginal pickup I think people do in terms of being at home right now, working from home, right? It's the, oh, this will only take five minutes or, oh, it's 10 minutes or, oh, you feel the obligation of doing this. It adds up. Like it really adds up. There's so many times where I'm like, oh, I could I could go pick, you know, pack the kids lunch real quick and go do this. And it's like, I'm fitting things in, but I'm fitting in a lot more things, yeah. especially on that front. So it does compound yeah. over time. It really becomes yeah, and it's, a it's thing. One last thing before you cook, she's probably like, okay. But like now you also <laughs> realize this, now that we're back at IRL and everybody wants to do in-person stuff, that I yes. started planning my in-person schedule the way I was planning my Zoom schedule. And I turned to look to my calendar. And I'm like, why am I flying next week to DC, Orlando, you know what I mean? Vegas and Chicago in five days. Like, yeah. what? how did I do that? And it's like, oh, I have to re-teach myself how I want to live because it's not on Zoom now. Like, I'm actually having right. to go in person and go have those conversations and do those talks and have those meetings. Yep. Yep. And, like, you know, there's a lot of exhaustion that comes, like, just the social exhaustion, the cognitive exhaustion that comes without doing it in person is vis-a-vis Zoom. I say it even happens on Zoom. Like, there's days I walk out of this office, it's dark out at 7 o'clock, and I'm like, I have no joke, beginning to end was on Zoom calls back to back. And it's like, it's yeah. just, you do get into this fit-in-more thing with being remote, working from home, the Zoom culture, and, man, five Five cities and oh, five days. No, I know, no, 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 I know. No, no. I'm with you. No, it's not, good. It's not happening anymore. That's it. I made one mistake and I'm not <laughs> So I want to welcome Claire, Claire Kane Miller. Literally, you are my hero. You are most women I know hero in terms of just speaking the truth. Um, your coverage at the New York Times on gender, on work, on family, recently on abortion has just meant everything, I think, to women. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I've known you, we go way back. 
you know, early Girls Who Code days as you were writing about diversity in Silicon Valley before it became a thing. Um, you're just an incredible, incredible talent, truth teller, um, and just a wealth of knowledge. And I think so much of your reporting has led to so much policy change, both in Washington Washington, and in workplaces. Very so excited. We're Thank thrilled you. to have you. Um, so Claire, for years, uh, well, we're excited to have you. I'm just so excited to talk to you. I'm like, hopefully you have six hours to be here with me uh, at 10, <laughs> but probably not the case. But uh, so, you know, you've written on the connection between women, childcare, work, and the economy. Um, and you did that before COVID. And then the pandemic hit. And I would say that, you know, you continue to write about it and the complicated relationship between these things. Um, some of what we saw play out, we were talking about the division of labor, right, was expected um, given the lack of true infrastructure we have. But some other things were really surprising. And so, and there's been a lot of debate about did women actually get pushed out of the workforce? Are we actually back? What happened? What didn't happen? And I don't even think that there's real alignment uh, in many ways, which is which is wild to me. We'll talk about that. But but I'd love for you to just tell us what did actually happen to mothers in the pandemic, and have we rebound, rebounded? Sure. It's funny because when the pandemic started, this is this was obviously all right on my beat. It's all the stuff I'd been writing about for years and all of a sudden it was in crisis. And I kept having friends text me like, oh, are you covering this? This is crazy. And I'm like, no, uh, my two, I have two boys too. Sounds like both of you do. I'm like, my two kids are home. Like what? <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not, this is like the most important time on my beat and I can't <laughs> like do it. I'm trying to do this weird remote school thing before it was even like set up. Oh my gosh. Anyway. What happened was that at the very beginning, um, many, many women left, 5 million mothers left the workforce. Um, in some cases, they were laid off because they, you know, worked in restaurants or grocery stores and those clo- or grocery stores didn't close, but they were essential worker jobs that closed. Um, in many, many other cases, they left because their kids were home and someone had to watch their kids and someone had to do school. And it became very clear, very fast that that was going to be very hard. And, um, and so mothers did what they always do when there's a crisis with children and they stepped up and they became the people who, who made the sacrifices to do that. Um, what has happened in recent months and even, you know, going back a year is that mothers have totally rebounded. In fact, there more mothers are now at work, paid work than um, a year before the pandemic. So mothers have more than rebounded. Um, there's a few things to note here. One is that I say than a year before the pandemic, because right before the pandemic began, and I know it's really hard for any of us to remember this time, there was a period of very, very low unemployment. And there was a hiring crisis, sort of like the ones we're, one we're in now, but for different reasons. And um you know, single mothers were working, um, people with, um, you know, disabilities were working in greater numbers than before. People who had been in jail were working at greater numbers before. All these people who had a harder time in um, the job market generally were getting jobs um, and employers were offering higher wages and there were all, and you know, more benefits like parental leave. There were all these things to recruit people. So, so many, many more mothers were working than usual. So the drop looked bigger than we might um, have seen if there weren't such an anomalous time right before the pandemic. So 
The economist who I trust most on women in work is Claudia Golden, who is just fantastic and has been doing this her whole career. She's at Harvard. And and um, she her data on this, um, I mean, the data on this is is the data. It just exists. And that's why it's sort of funny that there's not there's a controversy. The number we know the number of of mothers working. That's data that's collected by the federal government. We have that information. She um, makes the point that it's best to look at a year before the pandemic because it doesn't um, include the strange blip. and. When you look at that, mothers are actually working in larger shares than than they had been. That definitely doesn't take into account the stress that mothers are under. So I don't want to be like, oh, it was actually all fine for mothers in the pandemic and parents in the pandemic and women in the pandemic. It was nothing, no big deal. We're all back to normal um, because we all know that we're not and that um, and that women and mothers in particular, parents, all parents, but mothers in particular underwent a lot of stress and still are like not all the childcare infrastructure is back. Um, when you guys were talking earlier about the home-related tasks that end up taking time out of your day, I was thinking about how, you know, we had childcare till 6 p.m. every day before the pandemic to account for commutes and everything. And then all of a sudden we had nothing, of course. And then even last year we had no aftercare at school. They decided that the kids could be in school, but there was there couldn't be aftercare <laughs> for some uh, pandemic logic. And um and so we were like, oh my gosh, we have like people, kids home at 315. How are we going to do this? So now this year there's these like after school classes that go till 430. And I'm like, awesome. We have till 430. That's huge. But you know, before I had childcare till six. So it's like all these things are eating into your days in the way that the infrastructure is just really not back to the full extent um, that it was before. So parents are really still experiencing um, a, a ton of stress. And talk, talk a little bit about, like, so childcare is a big issue. We talked about, like, many daycare centers are so shut down. You know, we didn't have relief, you know, in Washington. We know that most families spend more on childcare than any other cost. You know what I mean? And also, how is that, how do you see that across wealth and socioeconomic status? Like, what are, what are the other disparities that we're seeing? Like, are some mothers functioning better than others? Or are we all kind of in the same boat? So, Throughout the pandemic, and Claudia Golden's data shows this very clearly once again, education mattered more than gender or parental status in terms of who lost work. People without college degrees were much more likely to lose their jobs, um, in large part because they were much more likely to work in the service sector, which is what shut down. Um, in When you look at the data on mothers, it's pretty interesting because in a couple senses, it totally reversed who felt that they left the needed to leave the workforce or who was sort of pushed out of the workforce. At the very start of the pandemic, it was mothers of school age children because childcare mostly stayed open at the beginning. Like I had one kid in school and one kid in childcare at the time. The childcare closed for two months and then it was allowed to reopen and school stayed closed for a year and a half. So um it was it was mostly parents of school-aged children at first who left because their kids were home. It was also mostly essential workers because if your kids are home and you work in a restaurant or um, cleaning a hospital or doing these things that you can't do at home, obviously you had to stay home. Later in the pandemic, both of those things completely switched. So schools started to open, school-aged children started to go back, but child cares uh, encountered, they were still open, but they encountered this huge um, hiring crisis that still goes on today where they're just really, really short-staffed and there's these long waiting lists. And also children under five weren't vaccinated until very, very recently. So some parents didn't feel comfortable sending their children to childcare. 
or even if they did, childcare was closed for two weeks at a time constantly. Like there were constant COVID exposures and everyone had to stay home for two weeks. Or in a lot of child cares with these unvaccinated kids, if you had any cold symptoms, you had to stay home for two weeks. And as you both know, because you've both had you know, toddlers, they have colds like for five years straight. And so you, they were constantly home. And so keep, so it was parents of, of child care age kids under five who ended up being home. And then it was also the people who, the white collar workers who were working remotely who started to leave. They had not left at first because they could work from home. The theory on this from the researchers I've talked to is that there was just like complete burnout. It was like, I've been doing this for a year, this thing with like working in my closet on Zoom with like the laundry in and my children running around and I'm done. I can't do it anymore. It's impossible. Um, and so, you know, they didn't leave in huge numbers. All in all, white collar workers who can work remotely, who have college degrees, have mostly been able to keep their jobs. Um, but as essential workers went back to work, it's the white collar workers who were working at home with their kids there who, who started to leave. Mm -hmm. Last question for a turn to me. So, okay. The data about moms, right? It, it's it's part of why I think there was, quote, the controversy is not about whether it was true or not, but whether it – what does it mean and what does it tell us, right? Because we know that yeah. moms are still exhausted and burnt out and are making different choices or if they're back at work, they're back at work at a huge cost to themselves, and so how do we use this experience that we just went through to actually change and make structural change? Yeah. Well, I think one thing is it means something kind of positive. The fact that mothers, for the most part, held on to their jobs means that, first of all, in many, many families, they're the primary breadwinner right now. Um, you know, they have been for years. Either they're a single parent or they earn more than their husbands or partners or they earn the same and, and they're income is essential. They're no longer working as like a supplementary income. It also means that they have really hard earned careers. They went to school. They care about these jobs. It, they have a sense of purpose from them. Um, it is something that was part of their identity. They didn't want to let go of. They wanted to go back. Um, that sort of attachment to the labor market, as economists would say, that sort of like, you know, tie to your career and your job is relatively new for women in America. That's something that we've seen in the only the last um, 50 years. So that is um, a pretty remarkable sign, I think, and, and sort of a, a positive message to take from all this. Um, the less positive message to take from all this is that this showed very quickly how fragile our entire care infrastructure was. Families um, had really patched it together, whether you know it was a nanny and childcare, or whether it was relying on neighbors or grandparents, um, whether it was you know that someone works the night shift and someone works the day shift, and they have to like be there in this exact five minutes to switch, or one person you know is home for the kids and the other person is leaving. These these ways that everyone had figured it out completely individually because there was no societal or structural um, answer for this. Every family had to work it out on their own and it was very fragile. And very quickly in March, 2020, it was just gone. Um, like I remember taking a walk in that period and thinking, you know, I'm really, really lucky to live in the city that both my husband and my parents live in. And we relied on the grandparents a lot. And all of a sudden we could not see the grandparents. Not only that, but we, I mean, we were lucky they've been in good health so far. So we hadn't had the elder care situations yet, but we were like delivering them groceries. Remember at the very beginning when it was like, you know, elderly people can't leave their houses. We don't, we don't know what's happening. And it was like, wow, that shifted really fast. Like I have nothing. I have nobody I can rely on. 
I can't bring in babysitters. Childcare and school is closed. I can't call the grandparents. I can't call the neighbors. Like we can't enter anyone's house. And I think it just really quickly exposed how fragile it all is. And what's what I think we're seeing now with the fact that so many parents, especially of kids under five, are really still struggling with childcare is that um, none of that was fixed. There were a lot of ideas the Democrats put forward in the Build Back Better bill um, for subsidized childcare. And that did not happen. Um, the bill that was ultimately passed didn't include any of the family policies at all. And nothing has really changed. In fact, it's gotten worse because there's the child care hiring crisis. There's unavailability. But I think that what this showed and the secretary, the um, secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, has has said this very clearly. The pandemic showed that child care was a broken market, something that it was before. But um, this showed it very clearly. And it, it still is. Nothing changed. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, you, you know, I can relate so much to the support structures you're talking about, Claire, like falling apart, right? We, uh, I also relate, by the way, to the after school, meaning like we are still struggling with the after school program where it's like, who, which, which I wake up every day and I'm like, which job ends at 3 p.m.? Cause I, I kind of need that one right now because my kids come home and they think that it's just like dad time. And I'm like, wait, 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 no, I'm still working. And then we have to like figure it all. It's, it's just relatable. You're right. I mean, it did shine the big spotlight on. The infrastructure that was just not there, right? The antiquated old systems we're still relying upon from a farming system back, uh, you know, in the in the 30s and 40s. Um, it's just really interesting. To, I, I want to ask you a question on you. You had a piece you did early on in the pandemic. I think it was you know early 2020 that I found fascinating in terms of how fathers and mothers are taking on the roles differently at home. Meaning, you know, one of the one of the pieces that hit me and struck me when I read it. Back early on in the pandemic, I've been reading for the study for a while. Was, you know, just how um, I don't know. Ego is probably the wrong word, but how fathers, myself probably included, think we're doing a lot more than we actually are when it comes to like virtual tutoring and and the other things in terms of teaching the children. I mean, like I know if you'd asked me, I'd be like, yeah, all the time. And I was like, really made me step back and think, whoa, that's that's I'm probably you know guilty of this as well. Would love to hear your thoughts kind of on how that's playing out, what the data is showing in regards to, has that changed? Has that shifted? Have new, new norms started to emerge? Yeah. So um, that was a very fun, fun's maybe the wrong word, <laughs> asking who was, who was in charge of the remote schooling at your house. Yeah. Um, and um, I will say that we did not ask um if you were in, if you had a partner who was of the same gender or not, um, most of the people who answered was a man and a woman, uh, a father and a mother parenting. So 80% of the mothers said they were in charge of remote schooling and over half of the fathers did. I think it was something like 56%. So that's impossible because <laughs> there's no way that like, the because we asked who was, who did the, the most in charge, not like, right. did you do any So 3% of the mothers said that that the fathers were in charge of remote schooling. So 55% versus 3% of women agree. Um, And it's it's amusing. Um, It shows a couple things. It shows that this generation of fathers, on the whole, does significantly more than your fathers did um, on the whole. Of course, these are generalizations. But the time that fathers spend doing child-related activities has increased. It's it's a fact. And um, men who are parents of young children now, for the most part, say they want an egalitarian relationship. They say they want to be involved with the children. They say they want to do these things. Um, so there's both a desire to, and in truth, they are doing more. Um, but what the data shows is that women still do an hour more childcare and an hour more 
housework mm-hmm. than men. And that was true when it came to remote schooling as well. It's true in all parts of life. Um, but then I looked into it a little bit more to find out like why this was happening. Like why did women just automatically step up? For, because for the most part, um, you know, the vast, vast majority of uh, women, mothers in this country work for pay. So yeah. it's not that these were like a bunch of stay-at-home moms who were um, who were doing this. And what I found in research all over the world, not just in the United States, um, you know, in other countries, fathers play a bigger role in their families, but even in like Scandinavian countries where there's like this very generous paternity leave and fathers take it and it's different. When there's a crisis, like a child has a disability or a cancer diagnosis or is hospitalized, the mother becomes the default. She's the one who sacrifices time and work and and does that it's sort of like automatically. And I think of what happened at first with COVID is sort of like a crisis. Um, it was like all of a sudden the kids are home, they have to go to school, what are we going to do? And the mothers just stepped up. Um, there's also another reason that this happens in the United States, which is that there is this expectation that men who become fathers work more like yeah. they've done these great resume studies you know where they make fake resumes and then apply to jobs and um and then they've also looked at who gets pay bumps or pay decreases when men become fathers or if they say they're a father on a resume they say like they're in the PTA or they coach a kid soccer team or some some way that they imply that they actually um benefit from that and hmm. they get paid more and it's because of this expectation that once you become a father now you're in charge of supporting your family and you're going to be much more responsible and diligent at work. And it's very important to you that you work hard so that you can earn enough to support your family. And for mothers, it's the opposite. So in these resume studies, if they say that if you're on the PTA, you're less likely to get called back for an interview. You're less likely to get a raise. Um, and it's because they assume that you're going to have these like dual priorities and that if a kid gets sick, you're out and you know, you're out for the day, you have to go pick them up. Like you're the one, you're going to be the default. You're always going to be leaving right at five. Um, and these assumptions are of course not true across the board, but they are part, they're baked into American work culture in a lot of really interesting ways. And the pandemic played that out, right? It's, it's like we were, we did become the default caretakers. We were the ones that said, I had to get off the Zoom earlier. I can't do that thing because I need to homeschool my kids. And so th- that, that many ways did play out that way. Do you feel like in a non-crisis setting, we can change it? Like, I always talk about this ad in the Philippines where they did this whole campaign about laundry being love, and it was to basically shift the gender ratio, right, of men doing more laundry. I I always joke that, like, my dream is to have LeBron James and Snoop Dogg doing the laundry at the next Super Bowl ad to really, you know, (laughs) basically give America a challenge of, like, how we're going to shift the quotient of care work that men are doing. Like, is that possible, do you think? And, like, would would it change equality? Would it change things for women? Would it give us back more time? It certainly would change things for women if men did more. Absolutely. Um, and men do more on um, this generation. So I think, you know, it is possible. I don't know if it will ever be true in the current system that ever, things are completely egalitarian. And one reason I say that is because I've looked at a bunch of studies um, for a story because I t- was trying to find a way to answer the same question looking at same-sex couples who become parents. And when same-sex couples become parents, one prioritizes earning and the other prioritizes home stuff and caregiving. Not meaning that one drops out of the labor force, but one has like a more flexible schedule or is more likely to leave early if there's a care emergency. 
And the reason the researchers who, who study this say is because our workplaces are so all demanding that it really makes sense that one person is like, I'm going to double down over here. I'm going to make sure we have this steady income. In fact, we are exponentially rewarded in American workplaces for overwork. Like if you're willing to work like 12 hours a day or be available on a Sunday, you don't make that much more money. You make like exponentially more money. Um, and so it, it just makes like logical sense for one person to prioritize that and the other person to prioritize the kid. So I don't know that in the current system, it will ever be fully egalitarian. I mean, two people can get flexible jobs and really make that work in their own family system. But there are some ways that I think um, can change things. I think one is that family policies, especially um, paid parental leave, meaning that the father has time alone at the beginning, to, alone with the baby. Um, it's shown, you know, it's great for baby bonding. It's great for like indicating at work, like I have this other priority that's also important. Um, there's also been studies that show like if you change diapers more when and you had paid, if you had paid paternity leave, you're changing more diapers at age one. You're more in involved with like school and feeding things at age two. So it, it does, um, it does set people on a track for that. I think that subsidized childcare would help because in countries that have that, women are much more likely um, to be able to work more for obvious reasons, all the things that we've been talking about. I think that within corporations, modeling can be really important. So, you know, there's a lot of companies that have, say, paid parental leave that the company offers, paid paternity leave. And there's an unspoken or sometimes spoken expectation that men would never take that. Or maybe you take that for two days while your baby's literally being born. Or maybe yes. you take that for like a week and then you're back. And um, when CEOs talk about that um, or when CEOs even say, you know, I'm this meeting has a hard stop at four because I'm taking my kid to the pediatrician or, you know, whatever it is when you say why it really makes a difference. Um, this has been shown in a few small studies. It's also just been shown in a huge amount of reporting that I've done talking to men about like, you know, do like at my company, the New York Times, there's very generous parental leave, including paternity leave. And when I um, first had, when I first got pregnant, I've had two babies working there. When I first got pregnant, I went around saying like, so they offer six months, like no one takes that, right? And everyone was like, everyone takes that. You take that. Like, like you're judged if you don't Even take like it almost, month. right? Yeah. yeah, like the senior editors were like, you take that. And and um, and um since then they've expanded paternity leave and it's it's the same thing. It's an it's not just like, okay, but it's an expectation. Yeah. And, and I've heard that it's like that at Google. I've heard it's like that at some other companies. So I think that, that can be um, really important to set that that cultural um, that cultural expectation up high, and then like at a much smaller level. I mean, this is like an ongoing frustration, but like the soccer teams and the play dates and the school emails, they just reach yeah. out to the mother. It's uh -huh. just like you know the birthday party invitations go to the mother, and it's like it almost will take as much time for me to like put it on my husband's calendar and forward it to him and be like, buy the birthday, you know, as it just do the birthday present and take the kid and RSVP myself. And so I think there's just like at a very, um, you know, those are like cultural changes that we all can make. Um, but I will share one funny story is that when we found out school would be remote, all remote, um, you know, the year after the pandemic, with the school year after the pandemic started, I started freaking out because I remembered the spring before. And there were all these like pods and like groups forming of like how we can do school for like working parents. And 
it felt very sort of like clickish, like who, you know, asking your friends. And I'm like, I can't, I don't even like, no, I'm not in a pod. What am I going to do? And, um, and so I decided I would just email my son's whole class, like all the parents in the class and say, like, is anyone looking for this? You know, we need, we need some support here. Is anyone looking to form a group to do remote school together? And I specifically emailed both parents of, of all 28 people in the class. And I got, you know, like, a dozen or more replies only from the mothers. I did not hear from a single father. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how it completely changes. I think there are things we can do, but there's like a deep cultural yeah, thing going on. I, I, I couldn't. It's so true. I mean, like I'm so guilty of it. Like I know that my partner gets the logistical emails on all the birthday parties and everything else. And he's like, I would much rather just deal with this than have to work through you to then deal with it. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay, cool. But I know that like, I feel bad because I never, I'm I, like, I get the emails and then I'm like, you got this, right? Like, I'm like, do, like, so wait, it's, it's one clear, of right? Because you're, you're, you know, in your marriage, is that true? It's true. It's very true. So it's so fascinating to hear you talk, Claire, because it's like, there, there is this, like, we had to be intentional about who was going to go work and do the whole thing and who was going to take care of the kids. And, you know, very promising career, worked on an ABC show, got an Emmy, like has done really well stuff. But it's also like your schedule is you have to go travel to a shoot location for four or five weeks. My schedule is like, I gotta, I gotta be in the office and do something. And so like, we had to like really be intentional about it, but we also fell into patterns, if that makes sense. Like some of it was intentional. And then some of it is like, it's just this, this like societal drive towards like the inevitable, if that makes any sense. And, and I'm with you, I think over time, hopefully structure will change. I, I, I'm a big proponent of normalizing paternity leave. Like I like was, you know, I wrote a whole article about how bad I was at that <laughs> and not don't do what I did is basically what it, it says in the whole thing. And, you know, I do think that that could help shift over time, but it really is interesting to watch like these patterns start to form because, you know, like to your point, like I, I get emails sometimes on a birthday party and I'm like, you got this? And I forward it and I'm like. But it does make sense in some, right? Like a division of labor makes sense. Yeah. There's no point in two parents spending that much mental energy RSVP into a birthday party and buying the present. Like, right. you know, or, and, and if one person does the laundry and the other person does awesome, like if, you know, one person you know, in my house, it makes sense for the person who likes to cook more, which is me. I hate gardening. I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> he gardens like I cook. So it also makes sense that I grocery shop because it doesn't make sense for him to grocery shop for the food that I'm going to cook. I want to be like, know what I'm going to cook. So division of labor makes perfect sense. Um, but, but being intentional about it, I think matters a lot. And so this was interesting from these studies that I mentioned earlier of the same sex parents once a child arrived is that because it wasn't there wasn't like a societal expectation or a default, a conversation was forced to be had. Oh yeah. So people, one person did prioritize a career and one person did prioritize like being the on-call parent, but it was like the result of a conversation. Like, yeah. you know, whether it's I make more money or I have a more flexible schedule or I'm ready to take a break or whatever it is. And, or like, I like to fold laundry. I find it relaxing, you know, these yeah. kinds of like, just, and I hate to do this. So can you do this? But just having a conversation as opposed to falling into it. Yeah. And I think that, um, 
that is something that opposite sex couples could maybe benefit from because then it feels at least like it was something planned and a choice and not just and like it's an not gender. Right. You know, I feel this way as the logistical parent yeah. and the mom. Like I sometimes rather work with the dad, right? Because the mom that I'm working with is just you know like not that great about like accepting calendar invites, <laughs> right? And so I, I think your point, Claire, about and I'd love to know if there are other countries that you have found that actually don't have the same cultural norms as we have and are closer to being egalitarian because they're having these conversations or it's not just as gendered as it feels here because you know it's it's the same reason why in America we have a nursing shortage and a teacher shortage is because we don't teach our boys to do care work. All of us have sons and I know for my family that's very intentional to making my son who is a natural caregiver feel comfortable that that's what he could do if that's what he wants to do. And so yeah. it is so deeply baked into American DNA that boys, men don't do that work even when they want mm. to. And like, and I wonder too, mm-hmm. my, my second part of this is like, what do you feel like is the biggest lever? If we, if you could make, wave your magic wand, is it culture? Is it corporate policy? Or is it government policy that would make the quickest amount of change when it comes to this? That's interesting. So uh, what my favorite piece that I've done in my entire career is called How to Raise a Feminist Son. And it was exactly what you're talking about. Of just like we, uh, you know, starting from in utero, when we start like, oh, what are you having? And it's like, I get it. It's the only information you have about this creature you haven't met. But you <laughs> end up assigning so much meaning to that. Like, yeah. if, is it a boy or a girl? And, you know, like parents of baby girls who are bald put like bows on their head just to signify like it's a girl, not a boy. <laughs> like we do... So much gendering early on. And I think that, um, you know, a big part of that is, um, is like you said, teaching that girls are very caring and that girls do care work and that boys like gravitate in other directions. And, you know, there are gender differences. I used to, before I had kids, think that you could like totally avoid that. And it is not true. There are gender differences, but a lot of them are really heavily driven by society and culture. And I I think that addressing that um, with boys early on would make a big difference. To answer your other question, I think that in other countries we've seen that public policy drives culture and that that can be a really important element. Corporate policy is very helpful to the people who work at those companies, but all in all, it's inequitable because the people who have the best benefits, family benefits like subsidized childcare and long paid parental leaves are people earning a lot of money working um, at like salaried white collar jobs. And there's been a recent movement um, among companies like Walmart and Starbucks to extend parental leave to hourly workers, but it's much less common. And and it also, like health insurance, means that it's tied to you having that job, um, which, you know, you don't know when your care needs are going to arise over the course of your life or career. Um, so public policy is more effective because it's generally universal. And in other countries, it does end up affecting culture. Um, for example, what I mentioned earlier is in Scandinavia, it's very common to see men out, um, you know, with with strollers and out during the daytime taking care of kids because they have these like extremely long parental leaves and they take them. Um, and so, you know, I think that has sort of like a filter down effect, but I don't want to idealize, you know, Scandinavia or Europe that has these better policies because 
we also find that that women's careers are really stunted there compared to the United States. So many more women work, a much larger share of mothers work in um, European countries that have these generous family policies. And, you know, economics research has showed that that's directly tied because there's these long leaves and there's these subsidized childcare and public school essentially starts at three with like free preschool that everybody goes to. Um, more women work, more mothers work, but they do not reach as high levels. It's much less likely for a woman to be in a senior position in um, European companies. And um, one of the reasons is, you know, it's, it's hard to know, but probably employers know that these long parental leaves might be taken. Um, and so they might not, you know, promote people at the same level. Also, there's like a right to part-time work in many European countries. So women take it. They take part-time work so that they can spend more time with their children, which then like slows their career. So you can you can debate whether, um, you know, that's a pro or a con. I think many people in the United States would advocate for a right to part-time work here. Um, it would really alleviate much of the caregiving burden at certain phases of life when when it's, you know, larger and you don't want to quit your job, but you'd love to like maintain a income and a connection to your job, but work fewer hours for a time and then expand again. Like that sounds amazing. And it really doesn't exist in a lot of jobs um, here, but it does end up having longer term effects on people's careers. That's great. It, it's, it's, you know, Claire, I feel like I could talk to you all day. It's just like fascinating the amount of information. I could talk about it. I mean, like, it's just, it's just even hearing about it. It's like you, you know, we, we talk about the United States. We talk about the Ford. We talk about Build Back Better. We talk about the plans that have been proposed, and they didn't really get like they got traction within DC. They got traction within the Democrats, but they didn't really get the, 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 they they didn't make it to the light of day. And so I know when I talk to parents out there, there is this just level of exhaustion, right? So waiting on po policy or corporate, you know, governmental policy, corporate policy any advice you have for parents at this moment in time on just the exhaustion in which they're feeling the stress of working from home, you know, the gender roles in which we play. Like I know that a lot of mothers are sitting out there, even fathers sitting out there are going, okay, what do I do? <laughs> You're right. The system's against us. The government's not stepping up. I have to work at the right company in order to get this going. What is the, what's the hope? What's the prospects here <laughs> that we can move into? Yeah, I mean, I get it. So I would say like, you are not alone and take it easy on yourself. But the <laughs> you're not alone, I think speaks to something else. We have always left family life. We've not always left in recent decades, we have left family life up to individual families to figure out. And mm -hmm. that was a very conscientious choice made by the federal government um, at a point in time that has now just become the expectation. So once you have a baby, you're sort of on your own, um, you figure out, uh, you know, starting with with postpartum care for the mother, there there isn't any. Um, and yeah. you figure out childcare, and you figure out are you going to do a nanny, or are you going to get on a wait list, and then you go on Google and you research this and you figure it out, and and then you know, at, in school you figure out what you're going to do at three p.m. It's just all up to individual people. And and like I said earlier, I think the pandemic really highlighted how much we each had these completely um, different sort of patched together systems for ourselves, and. I think what it's going to take is a more societal approach because raising children has never actually been an individual endeavor. It's always been a community endeavor. Mm. And we all knew that because we all had these communities. We had to create them ourselves, but we had them. We had these communities and they disappeared in March 2020 and we all felt that. And now we've worked hard to rebuild them. 
Um, and so I guess what I would say is as I, I don't want to put any of um, any of the onus on parents who are already overloaded. Right, right. But what I would say is remember that we're in this together. And as much as we can, like build those communities, like yeah. trade a day with your neighbor where you pick up the kids and they pick up the kids and you watch them after school if aftercare is your problem right now. Or if someone's sick, like get on your app and send them delivery dinner. Mm. Um, you know, if they have three sick kids at home and can't like cook that night, like we, that's all we have is this community and it's not anyone's fault. Like it is hard. I think that is my biggest message to parents is it is feeling really hard and it's not your fault. This is a systemic structural problem that is that we are all feeling individually right now. And, you know, apart from public policy, apart from, um, you know, changing the way that work works, um, doing all these things, we all we can do is sort of help each other build communities to um, to lean on for support. Yeah, I love that. I think that's yeah. so powerful and so important because I think that that is part of the problem is like this is your personal problem and the government, your partner or like, you know, your employer, you don't get anything from them. And I think that's why allyship is really important. Even in the march towards changing corporate policy change, like I want single people to basically be leading that charge who don't actually benefit mm -hmm. from the policy say this is what we want. And I think even as we talk about the broken business model of childcare, as Tim, I'm sure you could talk about all day long. But even as we're yeah. encouraging entrepreneurs to think about how this could look differently, what does a communal model look like? What does it look like when I realize I got to run out at six and I don't, I can't find a sitter on care.com. And there's, I know though, other people in my neighborhood who also, you know, have childcare that I could go drop my kid off. And that becomes normal or the way that we take care of yeah. families in our neighborhood and in our community. And so I just think that we have to start looking at in many ways, like the link starts with childcare and looking at that differently. The other one thing I want to ask you, Claire, is does the model of advocacy have to change? You know, I think a lot about this for Marshall Plan for Moms is like most mothers' movements have been about our children, right? Mothers against drunk driving, mothers, you know, demand action, you know, climate change, et cetera. But we have not had a movement of moms fighting for issues for moms because in many ways that has felt like it's selfish, right? Is that part of it too? I mean, could we have gotten this bill passed if a million moms marched, you know, on Washington and demanded it in this moment post Dobbs where Republicans are pretending to be the party of women and children? Is this the moment you could get a bipartisan bill passed on childcare or on paid leave? I mean, what is the, what is the opportunity there? Do you think? It's interesting because a lot of Republican governors um, that have banned abortion in their states are now saying that they, uh, they're they're talking about what sounds like a very progressive family policy agenda of like pay leave and childcare. And we want to help people want to raise families. And we did um, a deep dive into the policies in all 50 states. And it doesn't line up. The states that have banned abortion have absolutely the worst support for families, for poor families, for single mothers. They also have the highest infant mortality and maternal mortality rates. Mississippi is, is the prime example here, which is the state that, of course, sent Dobbs to the Supreme Court. Um, so, so that's one piece, um, in terms of mothers advocating, I would just say parents, because I think, uh, relegating it to mothers is, um, is a, is a challenge for all these reasons that we've been discussing. I think that men doing more, um, in, in the house, like in your own household, and then on a corporate level, and then on a policy level makes a really big difference. Um, I've written a fair amount about how Joe Biden, 
talked about care a lot in his campaign. He talked about being a single father unexpectedly early on. Um, he talked about caring for his adult son when he was dying of cancer. And then he made caregiving an agenda. And I do wonder if having, you know, an older man or, you know, any man talk about it um, made a difference. Of course, it wasn't passed, but it, it became a bigger part of the Democratic agenda and the congressional agenda than it had in a very long time. Um, so I think that that, you know, men getting involved in all aspects of this um is a key to making a big difference. And women, um, mothers have a lot on their plates already. Yeah. <laughs> here, here. No, um, thank you, Claire. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much yeah, for having was, me. This is fantastic. Thanks, Claire. Really, really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yes. And um, yeah, I think that I, I think that the next I think the next couple of years are going to be really interesting because I do think that like so much of what you've written about I think the activists have taken that, and I know I have, and said, okay, now what are we going to do about it? And so there's just mm -hmm. a moment, I think, for real change. And I think part of it is because you've helped educate us and, like, put link yeah. the dots. And I, but I think that that – I think a lot of a lot of what you have written about over the years, people knew, they felt it, but they didn't know. They didn't have the data, you mm -hmm. know? And I think having the data is really important to really making change. I think that, thank you very much. I, I do think the data matters a lot to this beat, making it less anecdotal and less sort of um, wishy-washy. I also think that it's just that uh, a lot of people felt like they were doing this alone. Like, this is really hard for my family. Everyone else clearly has it figured out. <laughs> and yeah. it's not true. It's just me. I'm the, I'm the mess, right? I'm, I'm the one who can't make it. Yeah, yeah. true. I, I was going to even say, like, I know a lot of parents who have, who, have, who have read your articles, Claire, and it's been, oh, I'm not, yeah, me, Oh, other people have, like it really is a sense of community when, you know, just even touching back on what you were talking about in, in that the real change is going to come in terms of societal for communities that we're going to build, like the network of communities we're going to build of parents helping parents. This is, this is an incredible place where, you know, your materials, your data are bringing people together and going, oh, good. It's, it's not just me. I'm not just, it's, I'm not the mess over here. Right. <laughs> and everyone else is awesome, which I think we get into as parents a lot of times, oh, yeah. you know, like there's just no normalization of like, oh shoot, everyone has to kind of deal with this. Yeah. Everyone's going through. Yes. Some craziness. I mean, I think yeah. you guys are overstating um, my contribution to this discussion, but yes, I totally agree with everything else you're saying. <laughs> no, we're not over. We're not, we're definitely overstating it because I, I do think, no, in all seriousness though, this could have been a topic that just wasn't written about. And that wasn't talked about. And, um, mm. you know, you were central to basically elevating that and making people, parents, women, mothers feel seen and heard, but also like making, again, the business case, which I think is really critical to policy change. So, um, yeah. so thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Awesome. All righty, Claire. Well, thanks for being here. And Tim, thanks for another great conversation. Wish me luck on having a child that's sleeping that through the night. Yes. I want to hear all about it. I just uh, I just helped my sister sleep train her new baby, and um, we've decided that it's my plan B. You want to come to my house? Does... I'm not that far from be... you. I'm in <laughs> Chelsea. Sleep training. I'm going to be like available on text. It's going to be like five hundred dollars a text. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Claire, are you doing it yeah. at one a.m. too? Yeah. Or are you like oh, waking up and allowing them to call? I feel like you're just like you're whispering like statistics only. to the baby yeah. to like lull them to sleep, and then like that's how it works. <laughs> yeah yeah Oy. amazing all right good luck thanks awesome. thank you everyone see you next time thank you bye good to talk bye. to you bye bye, bye.